Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting from Atlanta, Georgia, this is The Bright Side with Technisha. A daily broadcast on real-life issues that will keep you motivated. And now, here's your host, Technisha. Good afternoon, everyone. Today is June the 24th, 2014, and I hope everyone is having a happy Tuesday today. Let's be in remembrance and let's be mindful that today is also the month of black music history, so we'll be playing a little bit of that, celebrating some artists or maybe just one single artist today. I hope that everyone's weekend went well today. Um... Thank you for liking my show, tuning in daily with me, and liking my Facebook fan page, The Bright Side with Technicia. Now, today I will have a guest talking about the Midas Complex, talking about your financial situation, how money drives us so crazy, the psychology of money, why is it so powerful today. But at the moment, I will hit you with some tunes, and we'll be right back after this.
All right, we're back on the air. You're tuning in with Technicia, the host of The Bright Side with Technicia. And you, I just turned you up a little bit, waking you up with a little bit of Prince, Little Red Corvette. On the air with me today is Dr. Aaron Kipnis, who is a clinical psychologist with a private practice in Santa Monica, California. He is also a full-time professor at Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara. His fifth book, The Midas Complex, was just published this winter. He trains therapists about how to work with their clients' money-related psychological issues and offers Midas Complex workshops to the public around the country. And if you're thinking about Midas, yeah, it's kind of tuned in a little bit with that. But, you know, money drives many of us crazy in many different ways. Money is a powerful identity, yes but also a fantasy deeply woven into our sense of self, emotions, feeling self, personal work, relationships. So this talk will be more about the psychology of money than about how to make it, like almost every other book or show about money. Think about your own anxieties about money or those of the family you grew up in, and you will have some immediate thoughts about how to, you will have some thoughts about this as well. So, if you feel like calling in, do so at 347-426-3751. Dr. Aaron Kipnis, thank you for being on the show with us today and to give us ideas on how to deal with our money issues. Thank you. I'm uh, very happy to be with you today. Oh, yes. Um, I have had plenty of some of my guests talk about money issues, and money is sometimes the main thing that causes divorce in relationships. It's always the issue. Your debt not my problem, you spend too much money, I don't know how to budget. So, Dr. Aaron, please help us with these situations that we have. Well, you're right. Um, you know, I, um, I teach people how to become therapists. And some years ago, I, I read an article that money arguments are the number one reason that couples divorce. They argue more about other things, how to raise the children, who does what chores, hey, you don't take out the garbage or do the dishes, that kind of stuff. But what actually causes the marriage to fail and push them in divorce is irreconcilable differences around money more than any other thing. 
Now, the really strange thing about that is at the institute I teach, Pacifica Graduate Institute, there wasn't a single seminar for these therapists on how to talk about money. And then I looked around the country, and there were no classes for therapists at any of the universities around the country about how to talk about money. So that told me this is really a taboo topic. Money's kind of today like what sex was in the 1950s. Nobody would talk right. about it. And you get courses and class on finances, but nobody really just breaks it down into the real issues of talking about money, like you said. So, Dr. Kipnis, let me ask, what is, what is exactly money? Because a lot of people oh. don't even know how to define it. Yeah, well, that's that's an excellent question, Technisha. Um, the you know the first thing is an agreement we all have. It's a medium of exchange. We all agree that a twenty dollar bill anywhere in a, you know the United States will buy I don't know five cafe lattes or two lunches or a, a shirt, half a tank of gas, maybe a third of a tank if you drive a big car. So uh, we don't have what's there to talk about. It's just quantitative. Uh, it's just arithmetic. You know, you add it up. You have so much, or you owe so much. But that's only one side of money. That's the easy side of money. The other side of money is it's very psychological. It's a symbol. It means different things to different people. And even though we all have a common meaning of the medium of exchange part, our individual meaning is very different person to person. For one person, it means freedom. For another person, it means security. For another person, it means power. Uh, for someone else, it's sexy uh, or fun. For someone else, it's frightening. So um, this is what I've learned in my therapy practice. And couples, you were asking about couples, well, they often come into relationships saying, geez, we like the same thing. We like the same movies. We like right. the uh, same vacation. We enjoy making out with each other. But they have very different philosophies about money. Maybe their parents taught them save every penny. The, the wife, her, her parents said save, save, save. And uh, the husband's parents taught him spend, enjoy life, don't worry about the future. Wow, when you get those two philosophies together, it can create a lot of conflict. So the first right. step is to actually get people talking about it. What are your beliefs? What are, your, you know, what are the kind of uh, the codes that you grew up with, and what does it really mean to you? What does money mean to you? Right, because everybody has a different background, and most in situations, as far as what I learned, most men said they um, they learned it, it ties in with success, and women, we want more security when it comes. And I don't think mostly in relationships we like to really bring it to probably after we're separated, then it comes up in a and usually, most of the time, the emotional guilt is paid in money. So that's another observation. But like you said, we learn how to spend it or either just use it up. We are both on the same page sometimes with that, but it all deals with our family background. Yes, or things we've learned from the culture, you know, bel- right. you know, beliefs that we hold. But when they're different, then it creates a lot of conflict. Also, uh Many couples, uh, a surprising number actually, maybe as many as a third of all couples, have money secrets. That is, uh, Mm -hmm. secret credit card, 
They uh, take a certain amount of money out from what they're earning and stash it away somewhere. They buy things uh, without telling uh, the other spouse. And, and I call this financial infidelity because it is as serious to a marriage or you know any other kind of committed relationship, domestic partnership or something, but where two people are trying to move forward in life together as partners. Uh, if you have secrets about money, it's as corrosive to the marriage as having secrets about an affair with another person. And in fact, those two things often go together. Many, many spouses who have a secret around money also have a secret relationship with someone else. So that's, mm. um, that's where a lot of the fear comes up about uh, exposing the secret. So that's okay. one of the things we try to do in therapy is get all these secrets out of the closet. Right. Kind of makes me think about time moves. I actually do see that be based on true stories. They have issues with the money. They'll hide it, and they someone else. So I guess it is all true. I, w- I wasn't imagining it moving. Um, so, Aaron, how did you get into this Midas Complex? Was your family background based on that, or you never talked about it in your family? Well, um, you know, my family was very poor. And, okay. And um, I'm the first person in my family to to go through higher education and to get a Ph.D. Okay. Um, I, make, uh, I made a, very, a much better living than my parents. And so um, I've struggled a lot with that, with being in, now I'm in a world where a lot of people have come from family wealth, but I still sometimes walk around feeling like a poor person because uh, that's how I grew up. So I began to realize I have a kind of a complex around money, and it made me curious about it. So that's one point. Uh, another thing is, you know, we just went through this big recession, and during the Great Recession, more and more clients were showing up in my office with money troubles, and it didn't matter how rich or poor they were. Everybody was suffering. I even I had multimillionaires who all of a sudden were having to cut their family budget in half. And that was a big strain for them. You know, some people might laugh, who are, who, you know, your listeners who are working class and middle class, to think that millionaires were suffering too. But they really were. If you're used to living on $10,000 a month and suddenly you have to live on four or five, it means selling your house, moving, your kids going to different schools. It's a lot of turmoil. So here I was uh, in a field that hasn't trained anybody to talk about money, and my clients were all worried about money. They were losing their retirement. A lot of people were out of work. All of a sudden, I was doing job counseling. So I thought, well, maybe I should look at all the literature in psychology about how to talk uh, to patients about money, and there wasn't any. So then I started this research and thought, I better write this book, The Midas Complex, How Money Drives Us Crazy and What We Can Do About It, to help my students and my clients and other people who don't have useful ways to talk about all the problems, the emotional, psychological problems that people carry um, around their relationship to money. Right. It's amazing. I don't. It's amazing how it has taken over our society. It's one of 
become so preoccupied with it. It's like if we don't have it, we we mind. And and then I listen to some people too, Aaron. They spend it up and they'll come to work. Oh, I I need money, but you instead of spending it, so you have to stop trying to spend it or take off so much. Because I feel if you need it, then you should want to better save it. You should save it better. So I don't understand people sometimes. You want it, but yeah. you, you spend it up, and then you look at others like, oh, what is the issue? Well, the issue is that you don't know how to control yourself. I I don't know what it is. Maybe we need to be better educated on this matter because it is becoming difficult that we can't explain to our children on how to save money because in my household, I wasn't taught how to save money at all. But And it might be probably a little too late for me to actually just start learning, but I want to learn so I can teach my daughters, okay, this is the way you save it. Um, let's talk about capital, the interest, all that. Well, there you go. That's, uh, that's a good ambition, and it's never too late. I'll tell you my, um, my working definition now of wealth is, um, is if you live below your means, you will always feel wealthy. That okay. is, if you spend less than you make, no matter how much you're making, if you if you adjust your lifestyle so you're spending less than you're making, you will always feel affluent. But as soon as you start spending more than you're making, you will no matter how much money you have, you'll always feel uh, poor in some way. You'll feel strained and stressed and and all of that. So that's that's an adjustment that's hard for a lot of people to make. Because, you know, we live in a society that has taught us a lot of false things about money. And one right. of the most important uh, myths to break is that money can buy happiness. Now, it's true if you're poor that getting more money will make you happier. Because poverty, mm-hmm. especially poverty in America, causes a lot of suffering. So if you can make enough money to move from poverty to the middle class, there will be a growth of happiness. So that part of the myth is true. What isn't true, though, is that beyond that, that more money will make you happier. More money will give you more opportunities or a bigger house or a nicer car, but it won't make you happier. And there have been, since the recession, a lot of studies that show this. After about $75,000 a year, uh, in most of the states or on the coasts where we live, uh, around $130,000 a year because things are more expensive. Money, More money does not create more happiness. It just creates a new set of challenges. Right, and create a headache when you have bills to actually pay. Now, if you have money but you're not really happy, how can you become happier right now? Uh, that's a perfect question. So you have you have money, at least enough for the, uh, you know, the basic necessities of a pleasant life. You have a, a decent mm-hmm. home, safe place to live, access to medical care, uh, good food, you know, transportation, access to education. These kinds of things are basic to our happiness. Uh, beyond that, it's our relationships that make us happy. That that can infinitely increase our happiness, and this is what every major study shows, is not that happiness is not in things, 
or the acquisition of things, and it's not in more money. It's in the quality of our relationships. And okay. I've worked with many, many successful people, men in particular, who tell me things like this. You know, Aaron, I've climbed the ladder of success, and now I'm on top of that wall, and I have a big bag of money. And when I look down that ladder, I see at the bottom of the ladder my ex-wife, my kids who don't talk to me anymore, um, my health, my youthful dreams, and all the things I sacrificed. And it looks like I put this ladder on the wrong wall. I climbed the wrong ladder. And what can I do now? These are men in their 50s and their 60s who are alienated, isolated, alone, and affluent. (laughs) So the time is to focus on relationships and on giving. If you have a lot of money and you're not happy, you can start helping other people. And that's guaranteed, almost Mm -hmm. absolutely guaranteed to make you feel better. You bring joy into other people's lives. You don't have to give so much that it makes you poor, but enough to actually do something with your affluence other than just consume more goods. Right. It always Share works. the wealth with others. That's right. I like it. Right. That would, that would make perfect sense. That would definitely make me happy to see other people happy. And I like to always give because I know I'm not... I'm not rich. I like to help others. Don't like to get used, but I love to know that I have helped someone else come out because one thing about it, I definitely cannot take the money with me. So I give a little bit. And you know what really gets me about some of these commercials I see, they'll post up four pills for animals, this and that, oh, these children over here are starving. Okay, I respect all that. But to me, you're hitting the wrong audience because some of us are in the middle class. Some of us are way lower than that. Target these celebrities who ha- who really have it in their pockets, who go out, they want to spend it on foolish $4.5 million rings. Oh, I bought this mansion. Okay, target them. That's who need to be targeted with these commercials. I'm coming through my television talking about I need to help this animal and these children when I'm because I feel like that's, they're battering us. Because you're coming through our television set. I'm not the only one who have seen these commercials. So I want Oprah Winfrey to um, get I want the the um, Sterling's Watch to be targeted. Hit them with these commercials. Reach out to them. Let them help. Especially when it comes to these tornadoes, Dr. Aaron, they they hit us. Donate. No. Why why you want my pockets to be empty? I'm already struggling enough. And that, and I'm not trying to be negative about it, but that's how I feel. Reach out to them celebrities. Why don't you call them up? They're willing to help. Call them up since they want to be so giveable and lovable. Want everybody to buy the albums. So hit them up sometime. And that's all. That's that's how I feel. Like you don't never hit the ones who have the money up. You want us to read. Oh, if you can't donate five or ten dollars, no, I cannot donate five or ten dollars because I'm trying to spend on this bread and milk for my children. So no, I can't. <laughs> and that's. And I hope I don't sound mean, Dr. Aaron, when I say that. No, I think you're. I think you're speaking for for millions of people who are right. uh, who are just getting by, and uh, right. they, we see a, a very unusual phenomena happening in America now. 
the tax code has been rigged in such a way, the stock market has been rigged in such a way, the flow of capital has been manipulated in such a way that increasingly smaller numbers of people are accumulating larger amounts of wealth. You know, right. the people talk about the upper 1%. This is unprecedented in American history, where now 1% of the population has somewhere between 30 and 40% of the wealth. You know, that doesn't leave a lot left over for the other 99%. And once you get below the upper 10%, that the upper 10% of the population has about two-thirds of the wealth. So that leaves one-third of the wealth and the income to be distributed amongst the lower 90%. Well, you get down to the middle at 50%, there's very little left. And once you get down to the poverty level, and we're talking about 50 or 60 million people now in America who are at that level, they have nothing. They don't have stocks. They don't, have, uh, they don't own a home. They're living six weeks away from homelessness. You know, this is 50, 60 million people in our country who are struggling every day just to, you know, put bread on the table, clothe their children. So this is not the America that our forefathers imagined, where the elites had control of the majority of the resources. The, you know, they used to say, yeah, give lots of advantages to the rich. And when they make more money with the rigged game, it will overflow and trickle down to the rest of the population. But just the opposite happened. Instead of trickling down, it's being siphoned up. Now, there are many wealthy people who are generous. Let's not get to, uh, we don't want to really make anyone the enemy. Uh, Americans are very generous. Rich Americans uh, practice tremendous philanthropy in this country and all over the world. But many of them suffer from a disease and that's what I'm calling the Midas complex. And it's like they have a relationship to money as if money is a drug. And the belief is Why? if a little bit made me feel good and a little more made me feel better, then a lot more will make me feel much better. But that's a way a drug addict thinks. Uh, a little bit of heroin made me high. A little more made me even more high. But then a lot more kills you. Why? And this this belief that we have to have more and more and more at any price, at any cost to the environment or to the poor and even now to the middle class who's being driven into poverty is strangling our nation. And it's not even making the elites happy. So this is a, this is a mental illness where you, you keep thinking you have to have more at the expense of others. Right. Now, with with your book, The Mightiest Complex, How Money Drives Us Crazy and What We Could Do About It, and we know it does. It drives us crazy. Because if you might drive you crazy, where well, you can't think straight. You just know you have to pay this bill. Like right now I'm in that situation. I you know I got these bills to pay, but I'm not going to stress about it. I just don't want it to overtake me like that. Just knowing, because I know I will get my things taken care of by by God's grace. I would get it taken care of. But 
when I think about your book, Aaron, I think about the story of King Midas, and of course he was the man who wished that everything he touched would turn to gold. However, he had not thought that this wish was not actually a blessing, but a curse. And of if most people know, his greed invites us to think and realize the consequences that may lead us to become slaves of our own desires. And the phrase, the mightiest touch, comes from this myth and is used to say that somebody has a good fortune. But to me, are you willing to respect that good fortune? Are you willing to own up to it? Don't get caught up in all this mess out here. We get greedy. We want, we want, we want, we want more, like you said. And more can sometimes turn into pure sour milk. So you you want to be careful about that. So that's what I think of your book when I thought on it. I was like, oh, yeah, this reminds me of King Midas and his touch. So, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And when, you know, at first King Midas thought that was a great thing. He was turning his flowers to right. gold. But then he went to have a cup of wine, and it, it, it turned to gold, and then he was thirsty. And then he tried to eat his bread, but it turned to gold, and then he was hungry. <laughs> and then his his daughter came running across the palace, who he loved more than anything in the world, and gave him a big hug, and she turned into a golden statue. Right. And then King might have said, oh, my God, what have I, I done? I should have, right. I should have wished for a, a different blessing. <laughs> this is not a blessing, <laughs> as you just said. This is a curse. And then the gods were kind to him and, and took, the, took the power away so that he could return to a normal life. And when he right. returned, he realized that his wealth was enough and that really what was important to him was to the, the, be able to smell the flowers in the garden and to be able to taste right. enjoy the wine and the bread and enjoy the loving relationship of his daughter. So right. I sit with affluent couples and families who are being torn apart by and that's money how, problems. It, exactly. And, and that's not how life should be. You should be able to enjoy every bit of it. Um, as one of my coworkers told me, you know, it's okay to save. And there's nothing wrong with that. You are supposed to save. You're supposed to have money for backup. But at the same time, you want to enjoy life. Who wants to sit around like I used to all the time? Oh, I can't do this. I can't do that. Every now and then I retract and I'd be like, oh, Lord, I spent this on this trip and now I got to worry about these bills. But at the same time, I love my family. I love my husband. I love my twin daughters who are eight years of age. Yes, I know I have these bills to pay and they will, but it's nothing memorable than seeing your children just have so much fun to where they are and they don't know what's going on. So, I'm like, don't spoil it for them all. Yeah, it's going to get paid. I go back to work. I get paid every week. I will catch up. God has my back. I believe in him. I have faith. So I don't I don't want to stress. Like you said, Les Midas, enjoy what you have right in front of you. Sometimes we wish and we have, we don't know. We'd be sabotaging our own self. We'll wish for thinking. Right now, I, I would. I would love to hit the lottery. And then I was thinking too, Aaron, if I hit the lottery, then I'm going to be on the news and, Everybody's going to know about it, so I don't know. I'm kind of scared of that one. <laughs> well, you <laughs> know, know a, a lot of people believe that. They they say, you know, okay, uh, yeah, we hear what you're saying, Aaron, but I'd just like to prove to myself for once that a lot of money won't make me happy. <laughs> I'd no, like to won't. have a chance. But you know what happens with most lottery winners? 
is within two years, and this is uh, the vast majority of them, have lost all the money that they want. Right. Because you don't invest and not it. Only, you don't, you huh? don't do Because I was going to yeah. say most of the time, like they were saying on news, you don't invest your money. You've got to right. make sure you put it up. But not only have they lost their money, they're less happy than they were before they won the lottery because they've also lost friends and relatives and the sense of meaning and direction that they had in their life before they won the money because it just it overwhelms them and it changes their relationships uh, with everyone around them. What people really remember as they go through life, the things that really enriched them and made them happy, is not the things they acquired. You know, I, I mean, I got an iPhone for my birthday a couple of years back, and wow. that made me really happy for a few days. And now it's a useful tool. I like it. But it doesn't really make me happy. Mm. Um, but my relationship with my wife and the things that we do together, the simple things, just talking, taking a walk, um, right. going out for a little you know, meal together, the sweet little moments of life, those are the things that fill me with joy. And, and that joy keeps growing. Someone did a survey a few years ago about things that people buy and what category of things actually make people happy. And he could only find one category that actually produced lasting happiness for people. And it wasn't cars or houses or jewelry or new technology. It was things that people bought to have experiences together, like fishing equipment that they used to go out and, you know, the father would take his son out to go fishing, or sporting equipment that they would use to go out and play ball with other people. In other words, it was the the objects that they used to foster relationships with other people. This is the only category of goods that actually increased people's sense of happiness. Right. The smaller stuff. We worry about some of the big things and things. That's that what makes us happy. Just and in my opinion, you just do one thing at a time that you really like and don't work and don't hurry through it. Just slow down and appreciate every moment because that little small thing can disappear from you quickly because one day it made me think, Aaron, um, not getting off the subject of money, but I was at work and my daughter came up and my husband as well, and they was running around the restaurant. And I was like, I'm busy. I'm, I'm serving. I'm waiting on customers. And the guy, you know, he made me think. He said, you know what? Enjoy that moment because they grow up so fast. So just doing that and that alone, it you know, you can just increase in your happiness. So it's like Aaron was saying, don't make money your biggest factor. Yes, you got bills to pay. Yes, this got to be done, but we don't want it to overpower us. Don't let it be your only thing that you have to worry about because life survives, that's all you're going to worry about. So if your book, The Midas Complex, what would people actually find in it? Well, some of the things we've been talking about um, and some of the things that we haven't been haven't gotten into, I talk about also money addiction, problems with gambling, shop, shopping, people who get addicted to to things, um, the, all the issues between couples and children, how to teach your children to have a, a positive and healthy and useful uh, relationship uh, to money. 
the um, kind of actually even we start to be actually break down and challenge the idea of money uh, in the way it's imagined uh, today as these paper dollars. You know, one of the ways that many people are beginning to uh, change their lives right. is to try to um, exchange their time and their skills and abilities with other people without using money. And again, that brings us into a, an economy that's based on relationships with others instead of using money instead of relationships. Look, you know, money is a relatively new concept in human history. It's only been with us for a few thousand years. Human beings have been around for hundreds of thousands of years. How did we survive? And I'm not just talking about the Stone Age when we lived in caves, but mm -hmm. the pyramids right. of Egypt were built without money. The, the great civilizations of South America were built without money. The Chinese empires, the European empires, the Sumeria, all of these ancient civilizations were created without money. And they were created because people got together and cooperated with one another to, to right. build, to make art, to create religion and science. So money became a way to kind of speed up commerce. But now it's completely taken over. But we're not helpless. We can, uh, you know, we can make things and trade them to others through people who grow things. And those kinds of exchanges are also not taxed. So it gets us out of being a kind of a wage slave for the government. Uh, I'm not anti-tax. I mean, we have to pave the roads and build schools. But some of us think uh, it's, you know, if the rich are only going to pay 15% and we have to pay 40%, that's not a very fair uh, situation. Maybe we should um, try to do some trading with our neighbors and our friends uh, for the things that we need. Also, people are across the country are actually creating alternatives to money. It's called complementary currency or alternative currency. Uh, like uh, in, in, in New York, I think they have uh, the Brooklyn Torch, and uh, mm -hmm. there are Ithaca, Ithaca dollars. Um, on the West Coast, we have Berkeley bucks. There's Berkshire bucks and so forth. And these are, this is a, like script that they used to have during uh, World War when, when commodities wow. were short. People traded script. So it's an agreement. It's like a time bank. You provide a service. You know, you provide a radio show and other people uh, grow food or fix your car. And you exchange these dollars, these local, they're, they're only local. You can't take them out of your immediate community or your town. And you trade with one another. It's a way of keeping track of all of this trade. And it's also not taxable. And it's also not uh, part of the competitive. Uh, our societies become very competitive. Now, competition is good up to a point. It makes people stronger. makes people produce better goods. There is a bright side to capitalism. But there's also a dark side, which is this greed, accumulating more at the expense of others.
And um, these time banks, complementary currencies, trade groups, uh, exchange groups, these all undercut that competitiveness. They're based on cooperation, building community, and people collaborating with one another for the common good. Starting local power stations to use local sources of power. Starting community gardens to share uh, in local food production. Um, these are all trends, positive trends, against the elites accumulating more and more money at the expense of the rest of the culture. So it's not hopeless. Right. It's not hopeless on a national level, and it's not hopeless for us individual, individually. But first we have to confront the part of us that has swallowed these false beliefs that joy is in things, uh, not in people and relationships and community and connection. Right. And to me, the way people spend money foolishly, I think they just, they rather take that shortcut instead of the right one. I want to, real quick, instead of just saving it, we, we're, our society is foolish. We always got to have want, want, want. And as you said in the beginning, we want to live beyond our means. Normally, that you don't have the money to go on that trip, but you're going to go over, you're going to do what you want to do and still spend it up and, then, like I said earlier, you come back and you want what happened. I don't have enough money because you, you spent, basically. And, you know, Aaron, it keeps to mind when you said about that, the crazy and foolishness about people thinking about, I think you probably mentioned in your book about the problem in some of our major financial institutions. Who are these people? Oh, you mean like the people who are running our um, our corporations and our, our big financial right. institutions and banks? Yes, our well, banks and everything. I think most of them are are you know decent, just like us, decent people who decided to go into business or finance instead of law, or you know uh, business administration instead of uh, you know the humanities or uh, our other things. So there's nothing wrong with that intrinsically. But okay. because of the way our system is, this pressure to make more at any cost, there's a whole new generation, uh, particularly of young men, who've been educated in our best universities. And they've been mm -hmm. educated about how to game the system, how to make the system uh, return more and more money to them. But they haven't been taught morals and ethics. They haven't been given a moral education. So they don't have a, a sense of uh, responsibility to the community as a whole. And that's something that's philosophically wrong with our educational system, higher education, uh, and our economic system um, as a whole. Right. So we've seen a lot of lying, a lot of cheating, a lot of rigging, even, you know, the, the interbank loan rate, that was the latest scandal last year. Something that wasn't supposed to be rigged uh, was rigged. Various, uh, more and more is coming out about the ways in which the stock market is being rigged by high-frequency traders and insider trading. And, you know, the government is supposed to have oversight. But during the recession, the, the attorney general, when he was asked, 
Why are mm-hmm. none of these people going to jail for stealing hundreds of millions, even billions, billions of dollars? Nobody was going to jail. They were just getting fined. And he coined this term. He said, well, some of these institutions are too big to fail. They're too big. The government can't touch them because if we start putting these people away, these institutions will fail and the economy will fall apart. Right. So when we build our security as a nation on institutions that are morally corrupt, then we have a serious problem. We as citizens can do something about this, but we need to be more outspoken. We need to have more governmental oversight over our financial institutions. And and, and, and I have, you know, uh, me and my colleagues are also culpable in higher education. We need to be stressing uh, character development, moral development uh, amongst our students equal to the amount that we're also teaching them how to succeed in uh, in making money, in making a living. And that's the right. failing of our educational system that can be that can be remedied. You know, before there was all money and a technological society and industrial society, and people lived in little villages, people lived in small communities, they were accountable to one another. And if one person sucked up all the resources in a community and everybody else was starving, well, they would just take care of that one person, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Eskimos had a word for it. It's like a person who knows what's right to do, but, but the, who knows what's right, but doesn't do it. And this is the person who, uh, you know, takes other people's food and other people's wives and things like that. And then there would be a day where they would invite that person to go out hunting at the edge of the ice. And they would just kick him off the the ice flow. And that would be the end of it. And they'd go back to the village and have a big party. Now, we live in a more uh, complex society. We, and I'm certainly yeah. not advocating any kind of uh, violence towards people who are greedy and corrupt and uh, taking advantage of a system that was meant to give all of us equal opportunity. But I do think that the government is failing in its responsibility to police people at the top of the economy as vigorously as they do poor people on the streets who are struggling um, to survive, who may also... um, you know, compromise their moral beliefs to put bread on their table that night. And I think if the government was doing its job, uh, instead of protecting the elites, then uh, we'd have a much more equitable society and we wouldn't have so many millions of people who have become cynical about uh, fairness, issues of equality, equal opportunity, equal access uh, to all. Right now, I see where the psychopaths come in at all this, all this threat to democracy, and and people don't know where where to go from here. We this this money crisis is something serious. That's why we people they're robbing banks now, they're killing one another, they're getting desperate, they get more and more desperate every day. They will steal your pair of shoes off your feet, and it's very 
at now. That society has led to that. I, in my in my own opinion, I wish that we could go back um, to the Eskimo way of living instead of this Western values and you know, we're living in. At least you know that you'll have to fight for your but you're going to starve. you you got to survive out there when you're facing that. But, I mean, our, our children don't don't work what anymore. They have this media plan face, the technology plan in their face. They don't know anything. All they know is that they want more. They're not knowing the value of this dollar, what this actually means to save. So we have to really save our youth. We got to well, let them you... know that. Yes, exactly. I yeah. was going to. Yeah, we got to let them know it's not a free ride out here. It's not, because that's what they're thinking. And I see a lot of parents doing that to their children. You spoil them, and then when you can't spoil them anymore, then they're out here robbing somebody because you're making them think it's okay to give them a free ride. And I do, and I know, Aaron, you got to point. I do like the fact that um, Obama and Michelle, Obama and Michelle um, showing their children about minimum wage, how to go out there and Everything is not given to you on a silver spoon. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so many uh, young people today are feeling hopeless because they can't get access to good training for jobs Mm -hmm. and quality education. Not only is there a growing economic gap between the have-mores, as President Bush used to call them, not just the haves and the have-nots, he said, well, my group here, we're not just the haves, we're the have-mores. So there's, there's this huge gap now between the people at the top and the, and, and the rest of the nation. But there's also right. a huge gap between access to higher education. Uh, there's a growing gap that only the children of the elites can afford to get a, a, a quality education now. And this is very dangerous. It's a very dangerous trend for our nation. Because equal opportunity comes from equal ability and equal endowment with skills and uh, and knowledge. And if you can't get a good education, then you might become desperate and steal or, or deal drugs. Right. I've worked with a lot of these boys in juvenile hall. I was one of those boys. I spent my youth incarcerated. I grew up on right. the streets. But the reason... Uh, I'm where I am today, as I had a parole officer. When I was 19 years old, I had a ninth grade education. I was a felon. I had my future was hopeless, and all my friends, people I knew, we were all in the street, and everyone was into drugs, and there was no future. But he helped me get into city college, and mm-hmm. uh, and then I went from city college to the state university, and from the state university to private institutes. I got loans and grants, and I worked along the way and educated myself. And, you know, it's true for most poor people, most crimes, uh, financial crimes that are not crimes of greed, those are the crimes at the top, rigging the bank, rigging the stocks, but crimes that are committed to survival for to get food and shelter uh, and the basic uh, survival needs of life. You're not going to risk committing crime the danger of it, uh, if you can make money some other way. And if you take a young drug dealer off the street corner and put him into community college and point him towards the university and there's a path, there are grants and loans and support and opportunity and access to that, 
people would much rather have, uh, everyone has a dream, you know. Then most right. kids, everyone. they have a dream of a good life, and they want to, you know, have a family and a home. Um, but that opportunity is dwindling for increasing numbers of people. It's it's getting harder and harder to get that kind of opportunity. And almost I every other industrialized nation in the world pours money into education. They subsidize education. It's a good investment to educate people because then they become taxpayers and then they return to society. But this is the shadow of capitalism. We've become so greedy. And then uh, you have a, a political philosophy that says, well, if people don't have any money, that's their tough luck. They, you know, right. they were lazy. Mm-hmm. They were lazy. They're not lazy. They just can't even get in the game. So we need to open doors. We need to open doors to job skills training. We need to open doors to good jobs. We need to open doors to higher education so that everybody can have a fair shake in America. And uh, these trends, we're not the first nation to go this way where the elites kind of took over the resources. But every nation in history that's gone this way, the nation has failed. It sparked a revolution in some kind of way. This is what happened in the aristocracies of France and throughout Europe. And you can go all the way back to the Roman Empire. Time and time again, societies that have gone this way, that have large masses of people who are disenfranchised, who have no hope and no access to a road to success, uh, they become unhappy. And at some point, they've had enough. And the culture fails. Why? We're headed in that direction. It's clear as day. I don't know when it will happen. Hopefully it won't happen. Yes. That uh, the people at the top will wake up and say, you know, we need to stop accumulating and we need to start distributing. We need to start... Uh, Why? Not, not, I'm not talking about welfare. I'm talking about creating opportunities for people to rise up. Right. Right, I agree with you. We have so many children out there, even I, even the, because it starts with the parents, but the children I focus on the most, they're coming from these disadvantaged backgrounds. Like you said, we, they can't get into the high-status universities like they want the Ivy League schools because there's not enough money put out on the table, and I do hope that the, the people on top will one day come to their senses and do that, like you said, distribute out this money our, our homeless student population is growing. It's growing. I think it grew by 121%. And you have some of them who do make it, like like yourself, Dr. Aaron. You made it, but not everyone has that chance. It's only a, a select few who actually make it through the system, who be valedictorians of their class, who go on to college and become successful. And I, I really do commend those who don't let their situation stop them. That's what I mostly tell people on my show. Don't let your situation define you. You keep going. You be better than the next person. Because yeah, you, you, have, you have something that that person doesn't, and that's called a fight and, and struggle. You have been through it. You know what it's like not to have the money. See, the ones who have it, they already have their heaven here. As my mother used to always teach me, the rich already, your heaven is now. Your heaven is now. We'll get ours later, Dr. Aaron. Our heaven will come later. The rich are already enjoying their wealth. And if you blow it, that's your business because you had it. You had it in your hand. Right. So I don't, sometimes I'm not even going to 
Sometimes I'm not going to tell a lie. I don't be feeling sorry when they go through stuff. I don't because they already, because you got the money. These spoiled little brats, these child stars, they grow up, act stupid. And, and that's probably why I don't want the money as much. I don't think I would want to be rich, Dr. Aaron, because the fact I'm a, you let that money get caught up here and then something break down. Look at the ones who, are, who have died off doing drugs and they were rich. That's, that's not good. So rich yeah, money. You know, yeah, my my practice is here on the west side of Los Angeles, so I, you know, I see a lot of these people who are in the entertainment business, mm-hmm. who you would you would think would be very happy because they have fame and they have money, and right? Uh, very interesting, rich, creative lives, but they often have you know a lot of these uh, serious problems as well that you're that you're talking about. You know, the, right? They'd be so miserable. The foundational myth of, uh, of American society, one of the foundational myths, is the Horatio Alger story. Horatio Alger was an author in the 19th century. One of his most famous books was called Ragged Dick. He wrote a lot of books, and all the stories were more or less the same theme. It was the rags to riches story. And this is the, this is the belief in America that anyone with, who just sets their mind on it who has fortitude and willpower and stays focused and and keeps their moral center can succeed. Now, it's true that some people can do that. And it's also true that in some countries, no matter how hard you try, you can't break out of your original class. There's no way out. So that's one of the great things about America. But it's not as common as people would like us to believe. And in right. fact, when you look at the statistics, only one in 100 people who's born into the lower sector of the economy can rise to the upper sector of the economy in their lifetime. One in 100. Now, those aren't terrific odds. The terrific thing is you might be one of those 100, or you might be, there's a larger category of people who rise, you know, from poverty to the middle class. I'm talking about people who make it all the way into the upper class, one in a hundred. So those odds are really bad. It's not the kind of thing that you can uh, say this is the land of great opportunity uh, on those kinds of odds. It's a false dream that the elites sell the rest of the population to keep them from going crazy and getting angry. But it doesn't have to be that way. If we open the, the pathways to upward mobility, which was the, the belief our nation was found on, that anyone could become upwardly mobile, if we really start, start removing the barriers to job, to wealth acquisition, to education, then we could see a lot more people rising up. It's, it's possible for us to eliminate poverty in this country. A a nation with the kind of wealth America has, there shouldn't be anyone poor in our nation. Everyone who wants to work should be able to get a job. Everyone who wants education should be able to get an education. But uh, that's not the way things are today. So it's our responsibility as citizens to change this, right? I do agree. I do agree with that because we still have homelessness. We still got people out here starving, going the post, so these are just things that we have to 
look at it. And don't think that your problems are bigger than anybody else because someone is always going through a, a, a situation out here worse than ours. But, Dr. Aaron, before we get off the air, how can people go about purchasing your book or even getting in contact with you? Um, well, to get in contact with me, I have a website. My name is Aaron Kipnis, A-A-R-O-N, K-I-P-N-I-S. So it's AaronKipnis.com. And there's a lot of information on the site, and there you can sign up for a newsletter or send me an email. And that's that's how to find me. Just search for my name on the Internet, and a lot of information comes up. And if you want to buy the book, you can ask your local bookseller to order a copy, or just go to Amazon.com. And it's called The Midas Complex. Uh, how money drives us crazy yeah. and what we can do about it. Right. I, I and, think uh, they'll I'm send one right here. out. Thank you. Uh, please, people, please do get the book. It's, I think it's very insightful. It's going to take you through a whole... Uh, uh, it's going to take you through a different change once you read it. Please, we've we got to get in tune. This is becoming serious. Our society is, is getting worse. The rich, it feels like the rich is getting richer and the poor is getting poorer, but... As I said, today is Thankful Tuesday, and as Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 through 18 states, always be joyful. Pray continually and give thanks wherever happens. This is what God wants for you in Christ Jesus. But, Dr. Aaron, I thank you for coming again, coming on to the show and sharing this information with us today, and you have a blessed day. Thank you. It's been an honor to be with you for this hour. Thank you. I mean, we are we we got caught up. I used to do commercial breaks, but I think this was a, a subject that really kind of hit me a little because it does affect the, all, so many of us, regardless if you're rich or poor. Okay, thank you. Have a wonderful day now. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, everyone, I thank you for staying tuned and with me. I'm going to take a short commercial break, and we'll be right back after this. Adopting a new pet is a rewarding experience. And Shelter Pets make super pets. Your new best friend will steal your heart, bring you happiness, and enrich your life for years to come. You can make a difference in the life of an animal. Adopt and bring home a Shelter Pet today. To find out more, visit the shelterpetproject.org. This message has been brought to you by the Humane Society of the United States, Maddie's Fund, and the Ad Council. You're so annoying. You're so annoying. Stop copying stop me. Stop copying me. Mom, tell her to stop copying me. Mom, tell her to stop copying me. Kids will spend 10 minutes copying everything their sibling says. You're such a You're doofus. You're such a doofus. How about two minutes to brush their teeth? Brushing for two minutes now can save your child from severe tooth pain later. For fun two-minute videos to watch while brushing, visit 2min2x.org. Two minutes, twice a day. They have the time. Mom! Mom! A message from the Partnership for Healthy Mouths, Healthy Lives, and the Ad Council. Ever wonder what makes us, the Smurfs, so happy? The forest, of course! This is where we, along with the beautiful forest creatures, make our home with beautiful plant life, clean water, and endless adventures. It's a place to celebrate. So discover the forest with your family today. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a forest near you. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. 
What a great conversation that we have had today with Dr. Aaron Smith. Please go out and purchase his book. It's a, it's a nice touch. The Midas Complex. My money drives us crazy and what we could do about it. And again, you can find it on his website at www www.aaronkipnis.com That's www.aaronkipnis.com Of course, I said today is Black Music Month. So, today we are going to be celebrating Phoebe today. And if you if you don't know about Phoebe, she was an American singer, a songwriter, and a guitar guitarist, best known for her chart-topping 1975 hit, Poetry Man. She was described by the New York Times as a contralto grounded in a bluesy growl and capable of sweeping over four octaves. It was at the Bitter End Club in 1972 that Cordell, a promotions executive for Shelter Records, was so taken by the singer that he signed her into the label and produced her first recording. She released an epon. She released this wonderful album because I had to think of a beautiful word for her, Phoebe Snow in 1974, featuring guest performances by The Persuasions, Duke Sims, Teddy Wilson, David Bromberg, and Mason. Snow's album went on to sell over a million copies in the United States and became the most acclaimed recordings of the era. Today, I have just that song, The Poetry Man. So all you cats out there who were born in the 70s, this is Just For You by Phoebe Snow, Poetry Man.
That was Snow with Poetry Man. I thought I'd take you to 1975 when times felt like they were just lovely and carefree. You didn't have to worry about anything. Everything was just trustworthy. But also, before I get off the air, what's trending now is about this woman who got banned from Memphis Zoo after trying to feed lion's cookies. I think we all know that was well-deserved. Come on, really? They should have ate your arm off. Are you crazy? I went to Florida, and I seen a bunch of alligators. I don't know why I was going to get over there and get my legs off. And speaking of lions, did you know that although extremely rare, there are black lions? Black lions are not biologically impossible. In fact, there have been scattered reports of black lions over the centuries. Just a little for you before we leave off the air. But I do thank you for tuning in with Technicia, and I will see you tomorrow. Have a thankful, thankful Tuesday today. And that you be prosperous in whatever you do. God bless you. See you tomorrow. Thank you for tuning in to The Bright Side with Tanisha. Come back daily from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern. God bless. Thank you.